0: Pastor John will be continuing his series on the book of Romans. And this morning's text will be found in the book of Romans, chapter 2, verses 6 to 10. This passage begins in mid-sentence with a, a pronoun that's talking about the work of the judgment of God. God will render to every man according to his deeds to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek.
1: Whatever else this text teaches, and it teaches many, many things, important things, it is very plain that... From this text, you are going to die. And when you die, you are either going to go to eternal life or you're going to go to wrath and indignation. You're either going to have, it says, glory and honor and peace when you die or you're going to have tribulation and distress. You're either going to go, in other words, To heaven, or you're going to go to hell forever. I just want to read it again and underline those key phrases. Because this is weighty and this is important. Verse 6, God will render to each person according to his deeds. Now he unfolds this, verse 6, like this. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will render eternal life. That's one fork in the road after death. Verse 8. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, he will render, here's the other fork, wrath and indignation. Now in the next two verses, he reverses the order, says the same thing over again (coughs) in reverse order. There will be tribulation and distress. Now that corresponds to verse 8, wrath and indignation. For every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. So there's one fork in the road, tribulation and distress. Now verse 10. But there will be glory and honor and peace. That corresponds to verse 7, eternal life. To everyone who does good. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Don't miss this. Could there be anything more important, or weighty, or relevant, or urgent, or immense, or captivating, than your happiness forever after death, or your misery forever after death? Cut off from God. And under his wrath. I want the attention of the children. If there are any children in here for just a moment. Listen children. This is important for you. Someday you're going to die. Little children are going to die. I hope. If there are any children in here right now. And you hear me. I hope that it will be when you are. Very. Very. Old. But it might be when you're six. Six. Or it might be when you're 16. And you don't have to be afraid that when you die, you will go to hell and be apart from God and hurting forever and ever because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that if any little child believes on him, that little child will not perish, but have everlasting life. But you do need to care about it. You need to care about it. It's big. It's a big deal. And you need this afternoon or tonight... Probably to say to mommy or daddy, how can I be sure that I'm going to go to heaven and not to that scary place called hell? And uh, you parents need to listen so that you're ready. Teenagers, a few more of those in this service maybe. Listen, be wise and not foolish. Be wise. Set your minds, your strong, energetic, teenage minds on the most important things in the world not on fads that will disappear before the winter is out. Don't think that you have a long time to deal with heaven and with hell. Every day the newspaper and the radio and the television news reports tell us about the random violence or the freak Accident, or the car wreck or the unexpected disease and a teenager is dead in the hospital or on the street. And if you think, well, it just won't happen to me and I will take care of this eternity issue when I am old, don't bank on it. Because a lifetime of trifling With holy things and energetically pursuing worldly things will so unfit your mind... For dealing with holy things, you will have no taste for heaven or hell when you are old. The capacity to taste spiritual reality will very likely be gone. Oh, how I remember as a boy, my dad is an evangelist. And I would sit under his preaching from time to time, and over and over as the crusades went, there would be the youth night. And out of his heart with tremendous emotion and tears on his face would come the words of Ecclesiastes 12.1. And he would look at all these young people in the eye, and he would say, remember also your Creator in the days of your youth Before the evil days come and the years draw nigh, when you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Listen, there are few things more tragic than a godless old person who no longer has any capacity to feel anything about spiritual reality. There's a tragedy. And you will be that if you don't avail yourself of these wonderful years. Few things are more to be feared than getting old in a frame of mind that is no longer capable of fearing hell or loving heaven. Married couples, single people, people in the prime of your life, beware of being swept up into the all consuming demands of your careers only to find yourself gasping for some fun on the weekend finding your relief from worldly work in worldly amusement, and waking up, maybe, and finding in the decades to come that there's no taste anymore for anything but the world. A connoisseur of restaurants... A connoisseur of videos. A connoisseur of the theater and the orchestra. A connoisseur of computers and a hundred other temporal passing things and no taste for God. Old people, old people, Right back here in that group, right back there. Some of my favorite people. And maybe some without Christ. Don't hide from this fast approaching all important reality. Don't hide from it. You have a few very, very short years left. My son Barnabas, who's 15 walked into my study about 11 last night and said, uh, how's the sermon going? I said, well, I'm wrapping up the Advent poem. And he said, oh, it's Advent. I can't believe it's Advent. Now that's 15. And he can't believe a year has passed. Tell it to the gray hairs, right? There they go, just like that. I'm 52, and I just wrote last year's Advent poem. It was yesterday. You have a few minutes left. Don't stop thinking about heaven and hell. Think about them. Think about them. Until you love God so much that it is a delight to ponder that the years are short. Don't go out into eternity in the omnipotent hands of wrath. Oh, I have a burden. God put on me a burden last night for our church. This is so strong. And the burden is that we would swim against the tide of virtually all the currents of our culture in this matter of heaven and hell. Because more and more and more and more America is given over to play. Whole industries, billions upon billions of dollars are spent to help us play. And millions and millions in those budgets of millions are designed to recruit you to play. More and more games and more and more entertainment... We now build our houses not with prayer closets. Name one structured around a prayer closet which should be first on the agenda of every Christian architect but with entertainment centers and screens that cover whole walls and video machines and computers that make it all go together with roundabout sound so that if by any means we can be distracted from Nicaragua or Honduras or Sudan or Somalia. Or the 70 who were just arrested in China, or the 150 churches burned down in Indonesia. Help me have fun this weekend because I'm tired and I've worked hard at my worldly job. I have a little test for you. Try this out on evangelical vocabulary. Calculate, for example, the increasing frequency with which we use the word fun to describe almost everything we like to do. Oh, fun. Oh, fun. Where are the descriptions of what we like to do like meaningful? or significant, or enriching, or ennobling, or worthwhile, or edifying, or helpful, or strengthening, or encouraging, or deepening, or transforming, or valuable, or eye-opening, or God-exalting. Oh, fun. Test yourself to see if you have just absorbed the whole culture of play. And it is getting more and more and more. And Christians are sucked in just like everybody else. This text is a great text to examine yourself. It teaches that after you die, you will either enter into eternal life and glory and honor and peace, or you will enter into eternal wrath and indignation and distress. And in the twinkling of an eye, that could happen before we're done here to you or me. 1967. I see these Wheaton students back here. I, I was sitting in the Wheaton Chapel, and V. Raymond Edmund, Don was probably in that chapel. Were you there, Don? Ross was there, I was there, Don was there. And V. Raymond Edmund, the chancellor, was preaching on entering into the presence of the king. And he paused, he took one step to the left. And like a log with the most horrible thud I've ever heard, hit the floor and was dead before we could walk out of the chapel. We could hear his breathing. Oh, I want to go like that. No, I want to go like that. (laughs) That would be good. That would be good. And it could happen to you. You could just slump over in your pew and just think of it no second chances you're either in heaven or you're in hell forever think of it let this text make you think of it weigh it feel it so that you can, by some means, escape from the culture of triviality that is being sold and marketed to us with such tremendous forcefulness through every media possible. Live in the light of eternity. And I do say light, not shadow. I say light. Live in the light of eternity because if you come to the point of knowing God so well and walking long enough with King Jesus that you can say from the bottom of your heart to live is Christ and to die is gain, then all your days lived in the face of eternity will be lived in light and not in a shadow. You will not have to be afraid. You'll be able to give Marsha Lane's testimony from last week, so that as she lay on her living room floor wondering, is it now? God gave her assurance, it's okay, because to die is gain. Be that way. Get to know him that well. And you can't get to know him that well if you live flat out for your career and then bury yourself in the entertainment center. It will not happen. What are you going to do when you get cancer and leukemia? What are you going to do? One of my great mm, is that there are TV rooms in every hospice I've ever been to. You walk into these rooms on the cancer floor and the geriatric floor and every other floor and there in every double room, these two big monitors looking down at you so that people can, right up to the end, be entertained. It's a strange culture we live in. America's in a bad way. No civilization survives like this. Absolutely no civilization survives by playing for a business. And I don't care whether we survive. That's not a big deal to me. I care, the, I care whether you survive death. That's my job. America is a blip on the screen of history. And we are making it short. Short. Well, what we ought to be doing is dreaming a dream. We ought to be dreaming a dream. I mean, just think of it. Here we are all watching TV, watching the videos and playing our games or going out to eat or just making ourselves more comfortable, more comfortable. And a few people like Doug Owen dreamed a dream a few weeks ago and now today he's in Honduras and yesterday they treated 400 people when we ought to be dreaming a dream about how to alleviate pain and alleviate ignorance and alleviate lostness and alleviate misery what do we do? We read our stock pages and we read all the computer ads and we read all the electronics ads and we think about what we're going to get this Christmas and we spend our evenings saturating the world into our brain and wonder why we're not growing as Christians or having a significant Christian life. Oh, dream your dream. And if you would get heaven and hell clear to you, if this text would have its impact of eternity on you, oh, what lasting, strong, deep, unshakable pleasures of significance could replace the banality and the emptiness of fun the next morning. Tell me how it feels the morning after. Real deep, real significant, real rich, real strong, real human, real God, real lasting, real eternity related. It's all so small. You were not created to be small. You were not created to vegetate entertain endlessly right up through the coronary ward into eternity. You were made to live and suffer and die for King Jesus, for Christ and his kingdom, as Prexy would have said. All of that Is like landmines and oil gushers beneath the surface of this text the problem with landmines and oil gushers is that when you walk around on the ground you might be blown to smithereens if you hit one of them and you might become very rich if you hit the other one this text at least says when you walk around here there should be a certain seriousness about it because you can be blown up or you can become eternally rich so I want to walk around on this text for just a few more minutes and show you the structural surface of it Romans 118 118 to 32 has a main point namely all Gentiles are under the power of sin right we've seen that And they're without excuse when God judges. Now in chapter 2 verses 1 to 5 Paul makes the same point about Jews. Verse 1, therefore you have no excuse every one of you who passes judgment for in that which you judge another you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things. So you're without excuse when the judgment comes and then verse 3 repeats that. You pass judgment on those who practice such things and you do the same yourself. How can you Presume to have any excuse at the judgment. And then verse 5 says the same thing again. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He's talking to Jewish people now. He's talking to people with morality, who people who, who have a book of rules. And they're all under sin too. And then he gives an argument in verse 6. God will render to each... I think the word each there is meant not classes like Jew and Gentile, but each person according to his deeds, not according to his Jewishness, not according to his Gentilishness, not according to his pedigree or his family or his education or his intellect, rather according to his life, his deeds. And then verses 7 to 10... The meat of today's text is an unfolding of verse 6, an illustration of judgment according to deeds. And there are pairs. 7 and 10 are a pair, and 8 and 9 are a pair. 7 and 10 are positive, 8 and 9 have to do with the negative possibility of hell. Let's notice the two pairs. Verse 7, to those who by perseverance in doing good, there you can see him illustrating this according to deeds in verse 6, seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will render eternal life. And now drop down to verse 10, and you see the positive repeated. God will give glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. There it is again, illustrating the judgment according to deeds in verse 6, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So, in those two verses, the path to life is the path of obedience and the perseverance in doing good. Now let's take the negative half, or pair, in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, God's going to render wrath and indignation. So again, it's selfish ambition, it's disobedience to truth, it's obedience to unrighteousness that yield wrath. And then finally, verse 9, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. There it is again, illustrating the judgment according to works. The Jew first and also the Greek. In other words, just as in verses 7 and 10, the pathway that leads to life, eternal life, is the pathway of Good deeds and obedience. And in verses 8 and 9, the pathway that leads down to hell is the pathway of selfish ambition and disobedience to truth and doing evil. And he says in those last two verses, interestingly, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, yes, Jews go first, but... Whether they go to heaven first or hell first is based on the same criterion as where Gentiles go. And that's the point of the text. Neither Jew nor Gentile has any excuse. They are both sinners. They are both going to perish if they are hypocrites and accusing others while doing the same things themselves. Now... Here's the key question for our application of this. And next Sunday's message is the application of this message today. So we spent two weeks on this text. And here's the mammoth question that you'll take away now in just a minute. Is judgment according to works a hypothetical situation set up to show that nobody can perform it and thus everybody needs the gospel? Or, is judgment according to works the way it's really going to be and that the pathway to heaven is the path of obedience and the pathway to hell is the path of unrighteousness? Let me explain what I mean by hypothetical. Let's try to translate verse 7 hypothetically. Does verse 7 mean this? You look at it, and I'll give you my hypothetical paraphrase. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, God would give eternal life if they could do it, which they can't and therefore have to have the gospel of grace, which he gave them in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. And we'll spend the rest of this book unfolding. Let me try the hypothetical translation on verse 10. It goes like this. God will give glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. If, indeed, they can do good, which they can't and so need the gospel of grace. Is that the meaning of these verses? Or, should we take these verses at face value so that they mean what they seem to say they mean? The path that leads to heaven is really the path Of good works and obedience that's the path you better be on or it doesn't lead to heaven and the path that leads down to hell is the path of unrighteousness and disobeying the truth and obeying unrighteousness and doing evil things and if you're on that path that's the only place you're gonna go is that the meaning of these verses now to bring the question to a point Let me ask this. Would it be a contradiction to the gospel of free and sovereign grace, which is what I love more than anything, would it be a contradiction to the gospel of free and sovereign grace if... The grace of the gospel were so powerful that everyone who truly trusted in it would obey so that all those who are justified by faith are on the path that leads only to heaven. If that were true, There would be no contradiction between a gospel of sovereign grace and justification by faith alone and the teaching of the New Testament in these verses, I believe, that the only pathway that leads to heaven is the path of righteousness and obedience and good deeds. That's next week's question. I have at least nine reasons why I believe this second interpretation is true. And we won't deal with all of them, but some of them. So, in conclusion, would you this week ponder with all your heart and pray earnestly about the, the terrain of these verses where we've been now for the last 10 or 15 minutes? Because, and I take you back to the beginning Just beneath the surface of this terrain Are landmines called hell And oil gushers called heaven And how you walk on this terrain Can blow you to smithereens forever Or bring you into everlasting joy This is nothing to be trifled with This is nothing to be trifled with. And I'm just praying that God would give our church an unusual sense of seriousness for our own souls and for those we care about. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father in heaven. I long so much to live in the light of eternity, and I mean the light of eternity, the joy of eternity, the hope of eternity. I count these sufferings not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to the children of God. Oh, may every person in this room be able to say that as they dream their dream of a significant life laid down in sacrifice for the Hungry and for the uneducated and for the orphan and for the refugee and for the homeless and for the lost. Oh, God, may everybody dream a dream of ministry, not fun, because you have taught us it is more blessed to give than to receive. We can throw our lives away in our entertainment centers or we can find our life as we lay it down on the streets and on the mission field and over lunch counters at work in Bible studies and in our neighborhoods caring for the broken parent. Oh God, give your people... A dream of what life is for by teaching them to number their days and get a heart of wisdom. And now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. Isn't that great? Jude is a great book. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you. Here's another great phrase. Without blemish, before the throne of His glory, with rejoicing, to the only God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and power and authority before all time, now and forevermore. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.